turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Every morning is a new opportunity to take in the news of the day and the challenges of life and try to make sense of it all. Right now, we've got a show that tackles the topics and asks what you think. So get ready to start your day with a bold look at history as it happens. Let's learn, live, and sometimes laugh together. It's the Mark Davis Show on 660 AM, The Answer. All right, everybody, come on in. 866-660-5759. Mayorkas has been impeached. So what? Well, there is a so what to that. Uh, We're going to get some interesting days and weeks of uh, television drama that some people will simply have to pay attention to. And so that is, on balance, a good thing. It is primary season. Can you tell? (laughs) So all kinds of dramas uh, being played out there, including uh, I'll I'll have a a word or two about our chat with Brent Hagenboo, because virtually everything I've said uh, in the, the weeks, I mean, from meeting him and then having him on the show and then having all of his opponents on the show and the admittedly large focus on the residency controversy, which has kind of crowded out uh, the ability to talk about a lot of other things that senators actually do, which we we totally had the opportunity to do. But uh, Brent grew somewhat weary of me asking about the residency thing. Um, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Um, in fact, like 60 seconds. Um if Ronna McDaniel is about to step down as RNC chair, um, whom uh, whom do we like? You know, uh, is because there's uh, the notion is that that Ronna McDaniel has been uh, a a bad fundraiser. Um, and that. This Michael Watley out of North Carolina, who's the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party, would be a good uh, a good selection to be her successor. Uh, pretty familiar, Mr. Watley. I think he'd be just fine for vice chair. I don't know how important the RNC vice chair is, but um, President Trump has weighed in with a, uh, a heavy recommendation. Uh, how about his daughter-in-law, Laura? Who does like a lot of uh, you know conservative podcasting these days? This is Eric's wife, Laura, and um, and she was on. Where was she on? She was on Hannity last night. And I, I figured, you know, let's let's take a look at this because I'll tell you, if you're vice chair, at some point you might wind up being chair, and it it gets to the heart of what what's the RNC's job? What is the Republican National Committee's job like right now? Okay, back some months ago. You could argue that the RNC's job was promote Republicanism, uh, establish good networks for Republican fundraising, uh, beat Democrats at every level, good broadly defined things like that. With with the writing on the wall that seems to be there now, and if it's not already there in bold, thick, sharpie yet, it soon will be after Nikki Haley gets stomped in her home state Uh, 10 days from now, is it the RNC's job 
to direct all of its attention and resources, at least presidentially speaking, to unifying behind Donald Trump? The answer is, of course it is. His fate is the Republican Party's fate. That is the definition of Republican success. There is no one else who is going to be our Republican nominee. There is no development that's going to divert from the obvious plot line with all of its slings and arrows, with all of its drama, with all of its white-knuckle uh, tensions. It's Here it all comes. But the fact of the matter is, it's him. And that means that if something it has the name Republican National Committee— that it it can't be dallying around with distractions and sideshows and having a whole lot of time for those who can't handle the fact that it's Trump. So a little bit of the sort of the role of the RNC moving forward is uh, is pretty uh, pretty front of mind. Uh, 866-660-5759. Grab a line. That's where you call us. That's where you text us. Uh, so here's the deal. Um after the residency challenge arose uh, for Brent Hagenboot, um, his house was in the was in Tan Parker's twelfth district. He listed his business as uh, his residence. With the business is in the thirtieth district. The business is there, and is there a corner of the business you can live in for a little bit? Sure. Is that a technicality that will? pass the legal smell test. I've I've said all along, probably so. Probably so. And that makes it a technicality. And Brent attempted to explain that technicality today. Um, my question to him that was, uh, was how many, how many nights have you slept in, in the district? And, uh, <clears throat> The the thing, and when I asked him, has the whole thing just sort of been silly? Because I kind of think it, 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 I think it kind of has. I don't care. I care about the law. I mean, if he's on the wrong side of the law, he shouldn't be on the ballot. If he's on the right side of the law, everybody's been wasting their time harping at him about it. And what struck me as crazy is the courts can't figure this out. This has not been settled. It's not going to be settled before the election. And that sucks. Excuse me. So, uh, and, and if you are, and Lord knows, I've talked to all three of the challengers, Carrie Damore and, 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 and Jace Yarborough and, and Cody Clark, and they, and, and they have spent a lot of time talking about the residency thing because it's important to them that Brent be ruled ineligible because that's probably the only way any of them is going to win. Um, because Brent comes in with a massive load of, uh, of endorsements and goodwill and some campaign money. And, and by the way, good for him for having those things. So here's here's just my tie a bow around it thing about that about that whole race. I met Brent at the Texas Values thing. He's he's wonderful. He's great on issues. His biography is great. I mean, there's he's 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 like the textbook wonderful candidate for the uh, uh, for the Texas Senate. Um, the residency thing is weird. It is weird that it hasn't been settled definitively and can't be for some stupid reason. I don't know what that is. Um, he's either on the right side of the law or not. I don't believe the attempt to find him on the wrong side of the law is going to work. Consequently, I think he's going to prevail on the residency thing. And as such, that's about all we can do with it. I, 
So this was the interesting moment. I, and I chose not to make that the first thing we talked about. I guess it was, what, third? And I don't know if he had this one in the holster or something. There you go again, he told me. <laughs> Dude, really? <laughs> uh, famously pulled by Reagan in the 1980 debates when Jimmy Carter tried to say some things about, well, well there you go again. Uh, uh, people who are confident about prevailing on something and confident of the facts don't mind talking about them. And I didn't need to bog down for eight minutes of the residency thing, and we didn't. But um, the, the I wonder, and I guess we'll find out, because I'm, listen, I guess it's probably time for each one of those four folks to be on the show maybe at least once between now and, and early voting, or at least until the actual primary date on March 5th. Uh, ultimately, my best advice for everybody is, um, is, is just move on is, uh, is let's from borders to school choice to various other things that the Senate actually deals with. Um, it is interesting. Uh, I asked Brent, does he agree with the man whose seat he now tries to succeed uh, in uh, their, uh, the, the Drew Springer desire to impeach Pat? Here's what somebody doesn't want to do. If, if, if you have endorsed me, if I'm running for something and you have endorsed me, I don't want to uh, <laughs> uh, crap all over you <laughs> for, for something you did that I, that I disagree with. So, but I kind of do need to know uh, if, uh, if, if there's someone whose seat you are trying, who has endorsed you uh, and he wants Paxton impeached again, when the vast majority of Republicans in Texas didn't want Paxton impeached the first time, is that something that you're on board with? Brent obliquely said he's kind of uh, tired of Republican impeachments, which I think is his way of saying no. Um, and as far as the Cornyn endorsement, Exactly how helpful is a Cornyn endorsement this morning? Maybe not as much as it might have been a couple of weeks ago, and maybe less so as we as we progress. Because first, there's Brother Cornyn, who and I and you guys get with me a lot about this, and I get it. Um, I've known Senator Cornyn for a long time since he was on the Texas Supreme Court. He has always been gracious to me, available to us. He, he's a, a prince of a man in a lot of ways with a real heart for service at various levels. He's not as conservative as I am, and sometimes that has been an, an annoyance to me. Red flag laws are unconstitutional. Endless money to Ukraine is more than an annoyance. It's just a problem. And then you get some high school variety Paxton hatred. It's like, dude, really? Really? Have you lost every compunction? Uh, that you ever had to avoid alienating conservatives. Um, and, you know, uh, for you know, it's every six years, Cornyn's up again. And everybody says, well, we need to primary Cornyn. I always tell you that he's going to, he's, he's going to win. He's going to win comfortably. Would I say that this time? I don't know because there is real change in the wind because Cornyn, like Abbott in elections past, there's always been something where really hardcore grassroots, you know, 
dyed-in-the-wool conservatives have found these guys somewhat wanting. But there haven't been enough people who felt that way to really make them beatable. Abbott and Cornyn were always just conservative enough, just Republican enough, just desirable enough, just successful enough to, to win and win pretty comfortably. There is real change in the wind right now. And this Ukraine vote is emblematic that it's kind of generational. Not the one issue defines everything, but from from Texas, where you've got a Dade Phelan led squish patrol of swamp denizens being challenged by bold, nervy, fearless, consistent conservatives. Not that all of them are going to succeed, but that that's that's where the battle lines are drawn to the national scene where forever war. Cold War dinosaurs like Senator Cornyn, regrettably, like Mitch McConnell, like Mitt Romney, are being challenged by the J.D. Vance, Rand Paul, younger. I mean, this was so generational. Virtually all of the senators under 55 voted against this forever war bill for Ukraine. And it was the it was the old guard that's been around forever uh, that that keeps us stuck in that. There is change in the wind. It is a, and it's funny, so much of it is Trump. Obviously, a ton of it is Trump. But that's not all of it. There is a generational, uh, and what what he has brought, it is is generational. It is America first. It is, um, I I think, and listen, not that everything is emblematic of Tucker, but Tucker was on uh, with Russell Brand. And and he was talking about how his his next uh, radar is a war in the Middle East. I'll be the, the first guy to tell you that Ukraine is not a vital national interest, and Israel is. But is it a sufficiently vital national interest that you are we, are we going to send more Americans uh, to die in the Middle East of, in, in a spreading war as a result of the Israel-Hamas conflict? And I, I, I don't think there's an American appetite for that at all. We're done. And I and that doesn't mean that we're done in every world trouble spot. And we're you know, but this whole world's policeman thing has run its course. And there is a part of the boldness of the modern. How funny is it that it tends to be a younger generation thing? Because you know, here's Trump, who's almost as old as Biden, but millions of miles better cognitively who has kind of led this charge toward America first. The notion of taking our tax money and throwing it around the world in all these things that have little, if anything, to do with our security and our prosperity? We're done. And that is the way the Republican Party is headed, and I, for one, am thrilled by it. 925. By direction of my bride, precisely one artist gets two songs on the Valentine's Library, and it's George. We did Cross My Heart earlier. Here's a little Carrying Your Love With Me, George Strait, 1997. 
Society, enjoying the Valentine's Day library. Uh, included, there, I got two more left. One coming out of. Let's see which one do I want to do first? Um, dum, 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 dum. I'm going to do the, the the first one's just one that I played for her because I just loved it so much and loved her so much when we first uh, started getting serious about each other. Uh, and the last one we'll do will be the song we danced to at our wedding. So there you go. That, that sounds like good Valentine's Day material, does it? In the home stretch, also in the home stretch, some topics. In fact, I think I might get a smidge of Tucker talking to Russell Brand about uh, just it, it is it is there. It, this is one of the most interesting 180s. In recent political history, how far back do you have to go? And it's not very far to find out when the Republicans are the ones where we are the ones who want to just go out there and be a force for good around the world. You know, trouble spot. We're on it. Man, have we done a 180 on that? And uh, we'll talk about that and add uh, other things in as well. 866-660-5759. Mark Davis, 932. Nikki Whaley in the newsroom. One of my favorite bands, the Jayhawks, for my favorite girl. I'm gonna make you love me. Valentine's Day playlist. Alrighty, alrighty, alrighty. Eight six 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 zero five seven five nine. The return of Steve Scalise. Meant, uh, hey, we uh, we won by one vote. <laughs> Great. We desperately need a larger majority, a uh, larger margin of majority in the House. Uh, we need to work on that. That's one, you know, winning winning the White House. Obviously, job one. That's the big enchilada. Uh, it would be it would be great to to earn a Republican majority in the Senate. I totally believe all this is doable, and to have a margin of what could be ten or fifteen. Uh, in the house would be just extra sweet. It was the return of Steve Scalise that made this uh, made this doable. And Scalise himself was on with Kilmeade on Fox this morning talking about the vote to impeach Mayorkas. And uh, so let me let him talk about that in a second. But first, uh, it was on the Russell Brand Stay Free podcast. This whole, it's funny, this whole podcasting world is crazy. And I got to tell you, I love it. People ask me a lot. I I don't know what it is about the last couple of years, but I have done a ton of interviews in print and on people's podcasts about the future of radio and how I feel about that and the future of the talk format in particular. I'm enormously bullish on it. I think we're we're fine. I don't think I'd want to be playing music as a DJ right now, except maybe in the way that the folks down the hall do at KLTY. Because they are they're, they're so different and and it's so specifically focused in a way because I don't know for country or rock or or R and B anything anything aren't all your musical needs met on your phone on your iTunes on your Spotify you can get any song ever recorded since the beginning of time just by speaking it into a device I don't need dudes playing records for me anymore by and large. But as far as people who do what I do, please, <laughs> business is booming. So I, I feel great about that, about radio in the form in which you and I are sharing it right now. Throw in the whole podcast thing. Throw in the entire podcast element. And um, I, 
it's it's I, I love it because it's the ultimate marketplace. A zillion people have podcasts. My dog may have started a podcast, you know, overnight. Everybody can have one. You can do it. And the successful ones get a bunch of uh, listeners, followers, and ultimately sell advertising time. How fantastic is that? It's the ultimate democratic, Democrat with a small d, democratic uh, system. It's the marketplace. So um, now the, it, here's where I'm going with this. Some of the really interesting stuff is like Bill Maher and Club Random, if you like real time with Bill Maher, or some of the Bill Maher excerpts we play, an old school liberal who's not a nutbag, uh, his Club Random interviews are are wonderful. Uh, and just the the degree to which he just it, it's because it's the sound of free speech. And Russell Brand is this salty British comic, a comedian and comic actor uh, who's absolutely not a movement conservative by any stretch. But he has but his podcast is called Stay Free. And, it, and isn't it funny? That it is, it's Republican, it's, it's conservatives. We are the freedom people. Now, we've always been the freedom people, but uh, we weren't always the freedom people historically in, in terms of free speech. There was, you know, you, you go back, you know, your granddad's day, or maybe your dad, depending on how old you are, you could find conservatives uh, not that fond of free speech. The, 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 the true ones were, but uh, I was like, I don't know if somebody ought to be able to say that. Well, now... It's the liberals who are the nannies and and walking around with muzzles and cancel culture. While the conservatives are your cool uncle who doesn't care what anybody says, take it or leave it. I love that pivot because that's always been me. And so and I love when you get the Bill Maher, the uh, the, uh, the the Russell brand, the folks who are, are not, again, ideological partisan conservatives like me, for example, and, and but they're just out there, and, and you notice they're in the expressive arts, they're in acting, they're in comedy, they're in the performing arts, and they know that it is the left that is shutting down discordant views because it doesn't have the intellectual honesty to engage. So uh, on this particular occasion, our, our buddy Tucker, fresh back from Moscow, uh, sits down with Russell Brand and uh, this is exactly of of the type that I'm talking about with regard to uh, America firstism. It is not isolationism, but it, it is it places a bar very differently to what is and is not a vital national interest, and what does and does not deserve American blood and treasure. I would say two things. First, we have a right to be mad. At least, and let me just again speak for. Americans, middle-aged Americans, uh, which is what I am, you know, I've got four draft-age children. So if you're playing recklessly, fast and loose with their lives, then I have a right to despise you, and I do. So if you're Nikki Haley who's running for president or Ben Shapiro or— Whoa, Ben Shapiro? Well, (laughs) see, Ben, uber-conservative— also, uber Jewish and uber pro Israel. Guess what? I'm extremely pro Israel as well. I, I think Ben has ventured into the the land every once in a while of the notion of possible deeper American troop involvement in that whole Israeli uh, land space. The people I see on television casually mentioning the possibility of nuclear war or sending Americans to fight in the Middle East or in any way involving us in a war that has nothing to do with prosperity and peace at home, nothing, in other words, to do with us Americans, 
then I have a right to call you out and be really offended because it's my family. They live here. It's not a joke to me. It's, there's nothing abstract about it. And that is the difference between what's happening in the Middle East from what's happening in Ukraine, about which I had very strong feelings. But I didn't think there was a realistic possibility that my kids could be enmeshed in it. Now there is. So I think, you know, get some self-respect. I would say to my fellow Americans, get a clearer picture of what's important. Your children are important. Okay, that's number one, your children. And if they're threatening your children, I don't care what their justification is. They're your enemy. That's how I feel about it. Okay. Uh, let's pause. How did, uh, wow, immediately just flashback. I'm going to tell you about a, uh, a, a mom who had some thoughts about her son being sent to a foreign conflict. The mom was my mom and the kid was me. So I'm, I'm born in 1957. As Vietnam and the conflict roils and grows worse and deeper, I am 10, 11, 12, 13, tick-tock, tick-tock. And by the time we get to 1972, I'm 14. And my, and Dad is 20 years Air Force. He came out of the Air Force in 1969. He uh, And we'd had conversations. I'd say, Dad, why is everybody all you know twisted off about Vietnam? Isn't fighting communism bad? And isn't, I mean, isn't fighting communism good? Isn't communism bad? And fighting communism is thus good. And so it's good that we are there, right? And my dad said, right. But then took the time to explain to me why everybody was so upset. And that was because there was an appreciable and growing number of Americans who wondered whether our direct American national interests were forwarded by, by having our sons die in Vietnam and wondered if there was any chance, <laughs> any chance of winning, whether we were really going to, whether we had the commitment to, to, to do what was necessary to win. You do understand that's where I got, my dad is where I got one of my favorite lines about war. My, my, and by that, I mean the, my favorite logic about war is you don't win a war unless you kill enough of the enemy that they decide to stop fighting you. My dad told me that. He said, I don't know if we're ever going to do that in Vietnam. And he had just come out of the Air Force, uh, was so hardwired into uh, personnel, staffing of things. It's sort of a kind of a Pentagon sort of HR job at which he was masterful that uh, my dad, unlike a whole bunch of my friends, never got shipped off to Southeast Asia, for which I was grateful. And my parents were both grateful when the war ended in time for me to not get drafted. Anyway, my point being, there's Tucker talking about his kids, and that's not just a no, but a blank no as far as sending his kids off to to Ukraine or the Middle East. A ton of people felt that way about their kids in, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s about Vietnam. And we didn't – what did we think about those parents then versus what do we think about them now? Because sometimes you are those parents now. Whew. All right. Final Valentine record to take us out next. September 6, 2002. Lisa's in my first dance as husband and wife. Seems like a good Valentine's Day exit. For our producer, Ron K. Moreland, thanks so much, Jimmy Kersey, for filling in for Matt today, hitting all the buttons right. Thank you so much to Nikki for news excellence. God bless our country, our troops, our families. Love to everybody on this Valentine's Day. 
Thank you, Van Morrison, for writing this. And uh, thank you, Rod, for the sweet cover. Mike Gallagher's next. See you in the morning at 7. Mark Davis. 6.60 a.m. The answer. Be good. Mm-hmm.